Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's one of my favourite um, moments of the case coverage. The Mer- Mercury's the ca- that cartoon. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Norman Taylor's cartoon, yeah. Page 12 of the 24th of February, 1995, and another story about um, Stephen Downing. Um, and I think Norman's done a cartoon of him. Yes, he has. Can you describe it? Very odd. Yeah, um, there's, um, it's Stephen Downing with the Union Jack shorts on, and he's put HMM Prisons pole vault competition on a wall at the back, and he's got a... Uh, He's got Stephen dressed up as a pole vaulter. Suspiciously Olympic physique. Yes, yeah, with um, with a bizarre top on which looks like he's got um, prisoner's arrows on it. Yeah. It's a very good cartoon of uh, Stephen Downing, though. It looks very much like him. It's a cartoon done by Norman with um, Stephen carrying a, a pole vault, really, <laughs> so that uh, he can get out. Because I used to say, I think the only way... Yeah, well, at that stage he was likely to get out was it was a rope ladder or a pole vault really um, because there was no other way of, of anybody looking at the case uh, really to, it, to it see. seemed that impossible yeah, yeah, to, yeah. to the dream of him being free yeah. was, was that far away there was, well there, there was no system really no, no proper mm. system Don Hale, editor of the Matlock Mercury, which is a weekly regional newspaper in Britain, began to investigate the conviction of Stephen Downing for murder. Stephen was jailed 20 years earlier, aged just 17, for a brutal attack on Wendy Saul. She was beaten to death with a pickaxe handle in a Bakewell graveyard. Because he was 17, Stephen had been jailed indefinitely, or, in legal terms, at Her Majesty's pleasure which means for as long as the government wants, or potentially until he actually died. A life sentence in the old days sometimes meant a literal life sentence. The case with Stephen Downing would have meant, in effect, a life sentence. He would have been better in, in some ways if he'd been 18 or, or above, because then he would have had a, a specific sentence and he would have served, you know, uh, well, the maximum of that sentence or possibly half the sentence and been out. 
And what would that have meant in terms of numbers? How many years? He may have only done possibly 10 years, 12 years, something in that region. He could, he could have even been out, yeah, in, in this, you know, between five to 10 years. At this point, he'd been inside for 20 years. And as far as they were concerned, the records show that he would be 70 before he would be considered for review, you know, from 17. Stephen had lost two court appeals and his position looked, frankly, hopeless. He'd resigned himself to living the rest of his life in the prison system he'd been inside since he was a 17-year-old boy. When I first got involved with the case um, and went through all the procedure with the, the Home Office and that, they didn't even know where he was in the system. He, he, he was lost in the system. They had him down, had been at another prison. And Literally physically lost? Like Physically lost in the system. They couldn't tell me where he was. They didn't know which prison he was at. I had to tell them, and they were more or less calling me a, a liar for, for doing so, and they said, well, how can you know where this prisoner is? And I said, well, because I visited him last week. Now, Don Hale's investigation seemed to offer a real glimpse of hope for the Downing family. Don had spotted holes in the police case and in the complex web of statements, procedures and evidence that suggested that maybe, just maybe, Stephen had a real route out and one that didn't involve a pole vault, a knotted bedsheet or a shovel. Don Hale was an unlikely knight in shining armour. Don didn't have a police background, he wasn't a PI and he didn't even have any experience of investigative journalism. I was approached with a potential miscarriage of justice on my patch, if you like, on my watch in Bakewell, about eight miles away from my office in, in Matlock. And I never dealt with anything like this before, um, never really came across my desk in terms of somebody being innocent of, of particular murder. And so I never really investigated anything as such, but this was something different. My name's uh, Donald Hale, known as Don in the trade, in North Wales. Semi-retired, but seem to be busier than ever. But at the time, it was very difficult to take a miscarriage case forward because there was no real procedure to do so. As far as the authorities were concerned, and possibly even today in, in many cases, they think if somebody's been duly arrested, um, charged and convicted, uh, found guilty by a jury of whatever offence it would be, whether it murder, robbery or anything else, then that's it. Justice has been done. And my experience over the last 30, 40 years is either the defence has been poor or the jury's not really heard all the facts. And so there have been a number of cases uh, of miscarriage. If certain facts and figures have been put before the jury, would they have come up with the same results and found them guilty? He was the editor of a small local newspaper in rural Derbyshire based in a building that you could hardly call state-of-the-art. That is the sound of a microphone. So it's a great old machine, isn't it? Jackie, can you tell me who you are what you're looking at? <laughs> My name's Jackie Dunn. Um, I'm looking at the Matlock Mercury, which I used to work for. 27th of January 1995. So this is the first... I this is when Dunn took it. To, I think you're right. I think, it's, I think it <clears> is. Yeah. What's the headline? Um, innocent or guilty, the Home Secretary is to be asked to reopen the file on Stephen Leslie Downing, the teenager convicted of the Batewell Cemetery murder of Mrs Wendy Sewell in 1973. 
to go in 95. Oh, God. Isn't that Karen Keaton? Is it? No, Sue Lawley. So many ads. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there was no internet really, was there then? So that's where you got your information from. You know... Because yeah. I remember faxing things to Derbyshire County Council because we, we had no email. For you younger listeners, a fax <laughs> is a really old-fashioned sort of um, um, email thing on yeah. paper. Yes, down a telephone line. <laughs> yes, <laughs> magically through the air yeah. to another bit of paper. <laughs> printed out at the other end, yeah. The team at the Matlock Mercury were a mixture of old hacks and new reporters fresh out of college like Jackie Dunn and Phil Bramley. What they lacked in experience, they made up for in ambition machines to help save the sex. sex it's within easy reach with over 4,000 condom machines in the Midlands oh that's not quite <laughs> that and they always had an eye out for a big story let's take a moment to step back in time and step into the offices of the Matlock Mercury in the 1990s I used to work as a junior reporter with Phil Bramley in the sort of what we call the cow shed of uh, the Matlock Mercury. Cow shed? Yeah, it was very, it was very um, basic building. <laughs> Awful wooden walls everywhere. It was a bit of a dump of a place in many ways. I mean, it was like an old uh, sort of converted garage come shop. Um, <laughs> when it rained, it was pretty awful because it leaked like a sieve. And you're running around with buckets and things. Everything was sort of made up. We had a dart room. I heard there was darts room for a minute. Now I was thinking, like, proper, oh, proper no, no, old pro- school, a, a have, pro- a, have proper, a pub and a darts room. Proper dart room. <laughs> um, you know, stunk of chemicals and stuff like that. Don gave Phil Bramley his first break into journalism. We weren't quite on chalk and slate. We, d- we did have, you know, uh, early computers, but uh, it was it was fairly fairly basic stuff. And at the back of the place was the um, uh, the printers who used to make make the papers up there in in the in the building in the building in the, actually in the building Whoa. yeah cut and paste you know things used to print off headlines and and bits and pieces because in those days it was, it was all it was literally a cut and paste uh, that's how it all came about really you'd you'd have bits and pieces of of the copy be all sort of typed up in this letter set type stuff and put on and they'd be putting headlines together as, as strips of paper and things. Um, and all made up so sometimes you know you find your headlines missing or something like that. and right lads check your shoes you know and you'd have the head, main headline on the bottom of your shoe <laughs> it was quite strange on this where's this where's the result of gone from matlock town you know right come on come on shoes off you know <laughs> so who are, who are the other people in the office well there were, there were all kinds of people so as far as the editorial side are concerned um jackie jackie me and dom with it with a kind of uh the, the mental reporting stuff there was norman who was the sports editor who was a brilliant cartoonist and then there were various other people that, that were kind of come in and out um so sam sam was there uh, and there were other people sam Faye? yeah so uh, so sam was there and, and again he he was he, you know if you talk about dominic of course sam really was you know old old school and he and he was he was brilliant he was yeah fag on and you know uh but and a great a great wordsmith as well i mean back in the days when you you know you, you didn't have a word counter he, he could look at a piece of piece of work and say you know, you know that's 278 words then you go no it's not yes it is <laughs> you know <laughs> Sam used to work there smoked constantly and every time anyone said where is Sam and I said and we used to just say look at the floor because there'd be a trail of cigarette ash of which way he'd gone you know and it was like oh I think he might have gone outside because there's a bit over there you know? it's like Hans- Hansel and Gretel of fags <laughs> yeah. bless him Ron Duggins was was a, a very good photographer quite a character you know good runner Jack the Lad I don't know whether he ever liked football really but he was Commission, shall we say, to take the photographs of, of Matlock Town. And he seemed to try and portray everybody as ballet dancers, really. 
And it was like playing spot the ball because there was never a ball on the pitcher. <laughs> and he had this unique knack of taking these great pictures of everybody jumping up for headers and things and no ball. And he got called no ball run, you know. And, and occasionally we actually cut a ball out of pictures and, 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 <laughs> and substitute it on the picture and put it in to which he went balmy, you know. <laughs> Um, but yeah, you, you could run your own spot the ball competition. You know. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say it was macho because it was such a small office. To be honest, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, no, because they were they, no, they weren't really particularly macho people at all. You know, it was just yeah. old fashioned in a way. Yes, yeah, way, yeah, 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 yeah. There was still an element. I mean, anybody who's sort of our age in their late forties would say that, you know. Even in the 1990s, it was I was the one who made the tea a lot of the time. If a visitor came in, or you know, I was the one that showed them where to to go and sit and things. And there was an element of that. And then, so, so <laughs> sounds familiar. Uh, yes, because no one can make tea. No, no, I don't even drink it. <laughs> so tell me about Don. Don, Don was Don was a, a a fantastic character. Again, great sense of humour. Uh, he he was. Involved very much in the, in the life of the, of the town, he you know, did all kinds of stuff. He was a say, runner. He, he still runs now. I, I, in fact, you see pictures of him running on Facebook. And it's like, <laughs> why are you doing that? You're picture running up the side of Snowden or something. Uh, uh, so, so yeah, he, he ran every day when I visited. Yeah, him. absolutely. Like, yeah, yeah. Really? Uh, uh, and and again, he he was he he, he was an old-fashioned editor, part of the community, very much tied in, knew lots of people. I'm Matthew Paris, a Times columnist. Matthew's a former Member of Parliament for Bakewell. I knew Don because he was editor of the Matlock Mercury and Matlock was in my constituency and he was a very good editor. He was uh, very proactive, he went after stories, he was, he was lively and, and his journalism was lively. Sometimes his imagination, I think, was a little bit lively, lively too. But um, that's journalism, he was, he was a great journalist. Today, just as in 1994, local media is a great way for people to get their concerns heard by people in positions of power. It's quite interesting how people will have quite a logjam of getting their issue dealt with. They'll come to us, we'll put a phone call in, and miraculously the whole issue is expedited much more quickly. Um, so now I'm, not, I'm not saying that we have some magic wonder that we can fix all your problems, but it, it is interesting how... The, the power of negative publicity can, can suddenly thaw frozen pipes and, and get, get people... So we have a lot of that kind of stuff. As an aside, Phil now heads up the publishing group which owns a stable of newspapers, including the Mallock Mercury. So that's interesting because, um, going back to the Stephen Downing case, so when the Downings were trying to, you know, pursuing their campaign to get Stephen, their son, um, get his conviction looked at, they came to the paper because the paper was the people who had to get things done. At first... Phil was a little sceptical about pursuing the Downing's claims of Stephen's innocence. Was there something in it? Or would it just mean a whole lot more work for the junior staff, including him, for nothing? I was never quite sure whether anything much would come of it or whether it was just the natural reaction of the parents, the family who felt they'd been... Because the natural reaction is, yeah. you know, you know my, my son would never do anything like that. You know, it's obviously a miscarriage of justice... You know, uh, or conspiracy theory. Absolutely, yeah. And sometimes that happens. You'll get people come in and say, you know, 
I, I, you know, my, my son is, he's, been, he's been convicted, you know, it's quite clearly a, a travesty, it's, a, you know, and all this stuff. And you look into it and it quite clearly isn't a travesty at all. It's the natural reaction of a caring parent who doesn't want to believe the worst about their son or daughter. Quite often when you get these, you're, you're never quite sure which, which one of those things it's, it's going to be. But obviously, you know, Don looked into it, found that there, was, there were threads that didn't seem to, to add up and kept pulling and pulling and eventually that the whole thing sort of unravelled. From the Cowshed HQ in Matlock, these people would form Don's unlikely A-team behind his campaign for justice for Stephen Downing. The more he looked into this case, the more sort of questions came up. Mm. Um, and so what I had to do was to sort of sit down logically and say, right, there's so much information here is to basically pigeonhole things and say, right, you know, let's look at the victim, let's look at Stephen uh, as a young person, let's look at the husband, let's look at the friends, uh, let's look at the witnesses, let's look at, you know, and so break it down to segments because otherwise you just get totally overwhelmed with the whole thing. You can't do it all in one in one go. I, I've always said with this, it's like a massive jigsaw. Imagine a school playground and you've got a jigsaw scattered all over the place and then suddenly you, you've got, you know, you're given the job of, of you, you're the man that's got to put this jigsaw together and so you try and put a different picture together you know, and, and build up characters that way. So you may end up with half a dozen different pictures and gradually you fill in the thing. So a lot of it is, is maybe sea or sky, where it's all blue, you know. So, again, that's hard to put together. So if you, Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, but by the time you've got all these pieces together, then the, the full picture starts to, to develop. I think if you'd said to me at first, you know, you're going to spend eight years of your life stuck on this, this case, you would say, you know, on your bike. <laughs> There's no way. I'm Lucy Ditchmont. I grew up in Derbyshire, in a small village near Bakewell, which we moved to when I was four, from the city of Nottingham. I know from my own experience that small communities, especially in rural areas, can view outsiders with a degree of suspicion. In places like Bakewell, and to a lesser extent Matlock, the ties that bind can also strangle too. Don too was an outsider. He was from Manchester originally, as was Jackie Dunn. And Wendy Saul had moved into the town from Sheffield with her husband David. Tell me about Matlock, because you're not from Matlock originally. No, no, I, I, I was um, born in Oldham and grew up in Blackpool and I still live near Blackpool now. I, it was quite, it's quite a small place, isn't it, Matlock? It's quite a small town, everybody knows everybody. It's a bit like that, so... It was very different than where I grew mm. up, you know. It is quite old-fashioned and sort of... Um, yeah, if you're not from round there, you would sort of get... Either with the idea that you weren't, you know... Who weren't one of them, kind of thing, and yeah. I don't mean that in a nasty way, but yeah. there is definitely a yeah. I think it's because well, you know my family were from Nottingham, and 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 I felt felt that that there was almost like there was certain like you had to be there for for generations because it's there's a traditional yeah. community where people yeah, have been yeah. there and stayed. I do there. remember once um, a guy came in. We had the memories page. Every local paper does, don't they? Where you put your pictures in, and he came to the front desk, and I'd not been there. I was only like twenty four or something, and he. He comes to the desk and he says, I've got these pictures and he starts bringing them out and he starts telling me that's so-and-so's auntie and that's so-and-so who ran the... And I said, I'm sorry, I don't come from... You know, I've only just started and I don't really know all these places. And he went, right, I'll come back when somebody from round here's in. And he put all his, his pictures back in his coat pocket and went out the door and came back later. It's a bit of a transit town because a lot of people who live there were working out at maybe Sheffield or Chesterfield or 
Ashbourne or wherever. So it was a bit of a commuter place in in that respect, but quite a sort of a friendly town, but a very sort of closed in a way. They they were they they looked after themselves, um, and they didn't take to strangers too quickly or too kindly at first until you sort of proved who you were or or you you were there for the right reasons really. As an artist of Towner, in order to do his job and to get the information and stories that he needed as a journalist, Don had to forge links with both ordinary citizens and those in positions of power. The location change from Manchester to Matlock was a bit of a culture shock for his family as well. You were... How old you? And were you, um, were you married? You had kids? Yeah, yeah, I've got two kids. I was early 30s anyway, I think, then. It was quite a change for them, you know, to come out of... Uh, you know, big place Manchester and, and go down to a sort of a small rural community really and so it, it took a little bit of time to sort of build up your contacts get to know people people had to trust and you know rely on you sort of thing uh, and vice versa my kids you know we, we eventually the family moved down it was easier then because then you know the kids were at school my wife was sort of working locally and we got to know people um, you know better uh, throughout the whole community and so it, it maybe took two or three years to sort of you know made yourself known really yeah and that's, and that's the thing listen, with, with with kids the kind of networks mm. you have with schools yeah. instantly kind of interlock you in a community that's that, right yes if you don't I mean I, even as a kid I remember <laughs> that from a lot you know because we moved from Nottingham yeah um, you know I don't think we ever lost the outside in us no, well, that's uh, just, you know, I don't, no, I don't think we did. You know, so oh, it's that guy from Manchester or whatever. You know, how long? How long were you there yeah. in the end? About twenty years or something. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, they used to say I had a very broad accent. I don't think it's changed that much necessarily over the time. But I mean, compared to to Bakewell people or, or Matlow people, sometimes a very very broad Derbyshire accent. You know. Um, so it all added to this foreigner element, really. But I think it's sometimes just a way of having a bit of a poke at you, really, you know, yeah. just to, a bit of a criticism, you know, something that, well, we wouldn't normally, you know, put that sort of story in the paper or whatever, you know. And I was there to try and cover, you know, everything as honestly and as, as properly as you can, really. I was also running marathons, doing charities and things like that. Because you're a keen runner, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Bear with me on the running thing. It becomes surprisingly significant later in the story. I was in the running club, um, again, in another avenue. Everybody got to know everybody. We had... What, in, you know, in Matlock? You yeah, know. yeah, Matlock Athletic Club. And um, I mean, we had a fire chief, we had a police chief, we had uh, a council leader was there. Were you a runner? I was a, a very keen long-distance runner with the Matlock Athletic Club. And uh, Don was a runner too, so I, I, I knew him through sport as, as well as through politics and, and journalism. We'd go out at evening runs, a dozen, 15 of us, whatever, and we're all something in the community, really. Um, not intentionally, but it's just the way it worked out sometimes, you know. The Masons with training shoes. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was funny. But, you know, I mean, and each week it was like the, the job of uh, another runner to sort of lead the race. So we'd, we'd go on different things. And because I was getting to know the area reasonably well, yeah, but not necessarily in the dark, yeah, um, I'd go out and run. I'd say, OK, it's, you know, Don, it's your turn now. Where, where are we going to go? So it's, oh, I, I've got this idea in my head. I've done it in the daylight sort of thing. I, it should be okay, you know. Thinking, to, uh, so we went off around Winster and all, all these um, little places, and uh, I suddenly thought, I don't think this is this is the way, really, you know. And we ended up with it in a farmer's field, and a farmer <laughs> shouting things and firing a shotgun, and telling us to clear off his land and things. And we're getting stuck on barbed wire fences, and things trying to escape from it. And then the following day, going into the into the newspaper, and the farmer folding up to. to say about all oh, these intruders had come on his land the night before 
and tried to make a story out of it. And I dare say that it ended up being a, a fire chief, a police chief, the editor, and all these other people that she'd been involved. But Good luck with investigating that one. I know, yeah. But yeah, I mean that that was it. I mean everybody, you know, soon got to know everybody else, and it was you know, it was quite a fun place to work, really. And same with Batewell, although it was a very different town. You know, that was sort of eight miles away. Wendy Saul was murdered in Bakewell. The town was and is still the home to the Downing family. Very different in many ways from Matlock. People were very private about things there. That was more of a sort of a, a snooty town sometimes, a bit a bit sort of snobby. Whereas Matlock was more. Uh, not more down to earth, if you like, really, you know. Um, everyone called a spade a spade, and that was it. Join me after the break when Don goes shopping with Charlton Heston and joins George Best down the docks. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. <laughs> William Tyrrell was a three-year-old boy who disappeared from the township of Kendall on the New South Wales mid-north coast on 12 September 2014. Police have been told he was outside playing one minute and gone the next. His disappearance has become one of the most puzzling investigations in Australian history. It has been going on now for almost five years. Millions of dollars have been spent. 
The strike force at one point had 26 full-time detectives. Hundreds more around Australia have been exploring 600 possible suspects. And what has all that been for? William is still missing. My name is Caroline Overington. This investigation, Nowhere Child, is available now. To hear more, just search for Nowhere Child in your podcast app. Sat in his office in Wales, Don shared some incredible stories about his journey into journalism. Tell me about your career. Well, I started in journalism. I was, I was playing football. I was a professional footballer. And who who did you play for? Bury, Blackburn Rovers, York City, Shrewsbury Town. Mainly as a, as a junior youth player, more than anything else. I, I was a very fast runner in my younger days. I was a county sprinter and what have you. And I got selected, really, because I was, I was pretty nippy down the wing, really. And uh, I got spotted playing for the town team and uh, we, we did pretty well. So I got signed up by my local club at Bury. I was apprentice there. Picked up a few injuries, really, and spent time in the stands. In those days, you weren't sort of uh, there, were, there weren't powers of spaces for players to watch the game necessarily. You had to sort of find a space somewhere in the stand. And quite often, um, I used to go and meet up with one or two of the the journalists, and so I'd sit with them in the in the sort of the press box, really. And next thing, I was uh, sat with one of the guys who was doing local radio. A pleasant enough lad, but he, he knew very little about the, the game as such. He knew, he, he'd be just talking you through situations where, you know, it'd be, say, a free kick outside the box, and he'd say, well, I think um, this number nine's going to give it some clout, and it'd be, you know, it, it, it popped up whether it goes in or not. And I, and I used to say, no, he's not going to do that. I said, I can tell exactly what he's going to do, you know, and I'd argue with him. And he said, well, how do you know what's going to happen? Because I said, well, we've been training with him all week. I know exactly what's going to do, you know. And so it was punching dude all the way through the game. I then got banned from doing it by my manager, you see, because he was saying that people were picking up on the fact that you were knowledgeable about the coaching side of it. And I don't think it had happened, but the, the theory was that he'd been warned that the manager of the opposing <laughs> team was listening into these things. And so this information they said, was being passed to <laughs> managers so they would prepare to try and defend against a certain situation, you know. So I was prevented from talking about my own one. So I was then asked by the BBC, well, would you mind uh, commenting, you know, going to another game which doesn't involve your team and commenting on that? So I used to cover, you know, big games, Chelsea, Man City, Leeds, uh, you know, you name it. And so that's how I got into it, really. Wow. I, I used to, you know, Radio 2 and... Uh, Oh, so you're, oh, you're, 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 you're very happy with the microphone setup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you just turn up and do it, really. It wasn't exactly a standard career path. I got knocked out at one game in the, in the press box. Man City were playing Chelsea. The press box then was in the middle of the two rival supporters, and I got hit on the head by a bottle and got knocked out during the commentary. <laughs> I sort of woke up and, you know, think, well, what, I don't know what day it was, I didn't know what score it was or anything, really. <laughs> Football wasn't the be on the end all. I wasn't on thousands of pounds a week. I was on a seven quid, ten quid a week, whatever it was, fairly minimal wage. And so you were encouraged, actually, to seek um, other work. And so they encouraged me to, to, to join the BBC and to do other things. So, you know, special interviews with uh, various personalities. Who were the highlights? 
the most famous one I remember is Charlton Heston, who was a massive man oh. then. You know, he was in Ben Hur. Yeah. He, he was a massive Hollywood star, which was supposedly like a two minute interview for the, the news or something the next day. You know, I got down there. There must have been 20 reporters from every paper you could think of and ITV and BBC News and everybody was there and whatever. And, you know, I was, I was Joe Nobody, really. And anyway, there was a sort of a pecking order in those days as to, you know, you couldn't jump the queue. Sometimes given a, like a raffle ticket, you know, you were number 24 on the list. <laughs> like a cheese counter. Yeah. <laughs> so Charlton Heston's assistant came out and said, oh, God, really, you know, he's, he's up to here with the whole thing. He just wants to get on and he's got shopping and stuff to do and, you know, <laughs> all this sort of thing. So I said, well, just tell him, I said, I, I'm, I'm a local. So he said, oh, you're, you're a local. I understand you're a local. I said, yeah, I work for BBC Radio Manchester. We said, well, I'll do that. He said, well, the thing is, I've got to get a, a suit and I've got to get a few things. He said, do you know where, where the best places to go are? And I said, well, yeah, I can tell us. So he said, come on, then. We'll, we'll, we'll go out. So we walked and we went round the shops. We had a bit of lunch, uh, you know, sandwich and stuff like that. And we went and he got measured up for this jacket and stuff and... It took about an hour or something like that. And I thought, oh, God, you know, because it wasn't really the two-minute one that asked for, you know. <laughs> so they, they chopped it down to about, I think, 20 minutes or something like that, you know, wow. and, it, and it played live, well, as live, if you like, the next day. And, it, you know, it was really good. And, of course, it got loads of work after that. Don joins George Best down the docks. He'd been farmed out to... Uh, Manchester Docks, um, he worked for the a transport lot when he was playing football because they didn't know, didn't think he was going to make the grade, funny enough. So they gave him an office job. He went to work for the Manchester Ship Canal, working there in the transport department. We got on like a house on fire, you know, because I was, I was playing football and all the rest. He was giving me tips and advice and what have you. And um, he said, oh, I'll have to introduce you to a few mates. And, you know, before we knew it, we got, you know, England players and all sorts of things uh, that were willing to talk to me and things. It was great, you know, it was a great introduction. And then you found, you know, people were actually asking for you, you know, can we do an interview with, with, with Don, you know, um, because, you know, I heard him on the radio such yesterday. I was doing these every, nearly every day. Don told me how he combined disparate parts of his life, running, football, and the local newspaper contact book, into his unique investigation style. I, I was the editor of the local paper, and I probably had about 20-ish local correspondents in lots of the villages and things like that. The local gossips, really, that put together all your WR reports and your darts and dominoes and, you know, what goes on in, in these little places, um, choirs and stuff like that. They're what we call village correspondents, which were quite often bored widows with plenty of time on their hands, and, and that they, they were paid you know, by, the, by the line to send us the reports from meetings that we couldn't get to. So, so they, they would send us, you know, the winners of the raffle at the bingo club was blah, blah, blah. So the initial thing was to contact the people uh, in Bakewell or the little surrounding villages in, you know, Middleton, Yulegrave, Birchow, wherever, you know, to get a bit of a feeling for it. Because, you know, I was still a newcomer. Although I'd been there 10 years, I was still a newcomer and I was an outsider. So I was, I was Johnny Foreigner as far as, as far as a lot of people were concerned. So they're in the know, and they'd been brought up in that area. So I think that was a good sounding board to sort of see, well, what do you think about it? Probably 75 80% were saying the same thing. They didn't think he'd done it. They thought he'd been framed. Uh, they'd heard other things about uh, a man running, seen running away from the scene of crime. They'd heard about boyfriends. So it began to sort of ring bells with me to, to say, well, actually, this is not quite the 
portrayal that I'd been told about that she's just an you know basically housewife come worker in in, in Bakewell she's got a good job etc I'm intrigued by the very clever way that you put your love and knowledge of running and of football together. I still do a lot of running, but I did quite a lot more at that time. And quite a few of the officers, some were in the in the running club, some I met jogging or whatever, and we had a sort of a common interest of sport or, you know, outdoor pursuits. When this case was sort of developing, um, it, it probably over the first sort of six months to 12 months, something like that, officers came to me privately and said to me, I can help you with this case if you want. Um, what you've been told is not true. I'm not happy about this and I want to help you as much as possible. This case was well known inside that there were a lot of aspects with it that were, were not correct. Officers who've been there maybe 20, 30 years, uh, certainly over the period of, of the, the murder, uh, in 1973, had more background knowledge of it, and that to me was was valuable. And so they would come to me, and some some wouldn't want to get necessarily involved with it, but they would tell me, "This is what happened on the day or that week. I was working at such a place, and this is what happened." Or we may they may have taken Stephen to court, or they may have you know interviewed him or taken him backwards and forwards to the the, um, the hostel he was he was kept at and things like that. So. You know, they may have been in the car and of course they get chatting to him as, as they go back. So they've all got different views on it. But every single one of them was saying he didn't do it. He wasn't the man that did it, you know. And it was quite strange that this was police officers saying this to me. And two or three of them at least, um, I would say were pretty desperate to help me. Now, of course, as a journalist, you, you, you know, you think, this doesn't sound quite true. You know, police being over-cooperative and wanting to help me. Is it... a a bit of a trap, is it a trick to get me to talk and, and tell them things that maybe we'll go back to senior officers um, and so it's a sort of catch-22, you don't really know so until we got to know each other fairly well you know, we, we had to be rather careful in what they told me and what I told them sort of thing I guess the, for them to keep their own identity secret and not to be seen yeah. having every information yeah, that's right My name was Mud almost from day one at the police station, and um, at one stage there was a photograph of me up on the notice board at the back of the, of the charge room, you know, basically not to talk to me, not to pass information to me. The Mecklenburg was more or less blacked in terms of giving information to, uh, and I was uh, public enemy number one, and, you know, I was known by the police really as the madman of Matlock, uh, as this sort of developed. Um, <laughs> So, you know, this was the sort of the atmosphere they built up and trying to destroy my credibility and, and what have you. But I say, it, it developed then. So we, we ended up with probably three or four very good uh, people that I'd known probably over much of the 10 years. The football fans as well and sort of thing. So we thought, OK, well, let's come up with some sort of coding. Um, now, because they may be, say, Manchester United fans or Everton or whatever, it would be too obvious to say, right, Joe, you, you support Everton. Um, we'll call you Everton, you know. <laughs> I said to one guy, I mean, I just said to him, well, I'm trying to think of a, of a good football team that you could put down that would not bring, make it obvious that you are giving me information. And he said, well, I've got the pools coupon here at the moment. He says, right, I've stuck a pin in Port Vale. Well, how does that sound? <laughs> and I said, well, that sounds fine. 
because I said, you no connection with Port Vale or anything like that. He says, no, nothing at all. I don't even know where it is, really. So said, well, it's near Stoke. I played there once. But I said, that's fine. That's okay. If you're happy with that. So if I'm not in or there's, you know, any any sort of code, just sort of say Port Vale and I will know then. And we arranged then to, to, to have a meeting place and it'd be, say, behind a stone wall. And we had three or four, you know, meeting places that were quite regular. So they might either call on their patrol car or some were runners themselves or whatever. And, the, and, the, and, and these they, these drop points were your running routes. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I would I would go around there. And so if I got a call, uh, you, you know, lunchtime or something like that, and uh, if I went in, oh, Jack or someone would say, oh, there's oh, a message Port Vale. Does that mean anything to you? I say, yeah, oh yeah, thanks very much. Yeah. So I'd I'd, I'd go on my, my trots then in the afternoon or early evening or something like that, go around and pick up this the stuff you see and it'd be like a just you know plastic folder um of material that i i was looking at really or something that he thought may be of interest to me and so um yeah just do that i fold it up and put it in the back of my shorts <laughs> and, and, and run back spy techniques based yeah. on both running and football i know yeah i mean this is how it works and so you know get calls from that we had another guy who he was worked at um police headquarters in ripley uh, he was a senior officer actually but his words to me this is an effing cover-up. Uh, I'll give you as much much help as, as possible. Wow. And he was um, a junior officer at the time of the murder and was threatened himself by other officers to turn the blind eye and to keep your you know, face out of this. Um, and these things are quite important to me because it, it then showed that of other officers who were genuine officers were under pressure at that sort of time and since. So when... It was made quite obvious, um, you know, I actually went to, to see the uh, Chief Constable, Deputy Chief Constable at Ripley initially to put, you know, give my details. And it was sort of spread like wildfire around uh, headquarters and to um, Matlock and Batewell and other stations that they weren't to talk to me at all about this case. It was, um, you know, I was banned, that was it, you know. I was a wrong one and you're not to deal with me at all. And so how did that make you feel and, and react to... Well, I was, I, was, I was shocked, really, because I'd, I'd worked with the police quite regularly. You know, I'd given a lot of publicity for different cases. We'd even cover charity events and things like that. A previous chief constable was quite pally with me. We used to run charity committees and things, and a number of detective inspectors uh, around the area and things used to come out running with me or, or whatever, you know. So we came across each other quite regularly. And I think most of those sort of guys were as stunned and shocked as I was. And their attitude was much the same as mine. What have they got to hide? You know, what is wrong with these people? Why can't they cooperate? I, I'd gone to them to say, right, if you're absolutely convinced that he's the man that's done it, you know, show me all the evidence. What I've seen so far was circumstantial evidence that got him convicted, which was really the fact that he'd signed a confession that didn't make any sense. But they seem to be covering up. With access to his own front pages in the Mercury and contacts with the national media and TV, Don was soon generating coverage with a global reach. But this publicity also increased the negative attention too. And the phone rang. I thought, oh, you know, do I need to answer this? And I went back to, to answer the phone and uh, somebody says, you know, keep your fucking nose out the downing case, you know. That that was the first sort of threat I got. And that's like day one or yeah, two where yeah, I yeah. raised her yeah, up yeah. and told you about it. Somebody had seen me on this date, seen me possibly going to the downing house or, or whatever, and that was it. Don told me how the attacks on him personally and on the newspaper intensified. And that was the start of basically eight years of, of har harassment, intimidation, threats. I had two hit-and-run attempts, 
Um, I had a, a firebomb thrown at the office, which um, went in the skip outside and set the skip alight. We had a lighted papers pushed through the letterbox at the, the Mercury, which set fire to some of the mail and the carpets and things. We had a brick through the window. And these were directed um, at you about this case? Yeah, all warning me off the case. He said that a, a car had tried to run him over. I remember that. And, and how did yeah. they see him? Was he shaken? Yeah, he was a bit, really, because we did get a lot of phone calls where people used to hang up in the office and stuff, and Don used to talk. People would ring up and... Yeah, I mean, he said that people had threatened him, and I believed him. I didn't you, you, have any reason not yeah, to. Yeah, because, I mean, some people have said that's all made up. Well, I don't, I don't think so. He genuinely seemed quite shocked when he came in after, he, you know. Was this a normal part of being a newspaper? Well, sometimes people would uh, ring up and moan about things, but they'd usually identify who they were, but sometimes people would ring up, um, especially with, with the downing thing, because I used to often answer the phone and transfer the calls over, you know. Don began to fear for his family. He was a known figure, recognisable in Matlock, Bakewell and scores of surrounding villages. People knew him. They knew where he worked and they knew where he lived. I'm sure they rang his house as well because I think he was in, bizarrely, he was in the phone directory at one point. I think he had to change his number because um, he lived right in the centre of town. So, and What do you think the impact of, of being so deep in the story was on Don? Could you see a change in him? Yeah, look, he was quite stressed, I think, a lot of the time. And he spent, um, he spent obviously, spent an awful lot of his own time doing stuff with that, I think, and, and reading things and doing research. And so he got a bit obsessed with it, I think. Do you think that had an impact on his family? I don't know. I, don't, I, I, I mean, his kids were only little, weren't they? And then I think he's, um, he's, he had two sons, I yeah. think, and they were, they were only in their early teens, I think, at the time. Yeah. If, if that, I think one of them might have even been younger. Because when I was talking to him, he talked about the kind of, yeah, the stresses of it. And yeah, he was stressed. He looked stressed. He looked quite, I mean, he was, what, 42 or something at the time? In his early 40s, and he did look older than that. Yeah. Uh, you know, he did visibly seem to age a bit. Well, I mean, uh, one of the most... Um, dangerous things I had was it was a chase by a lorry um, which was um, quite surprising I, I got an uh, anonymous phone call just sort of after I was about to pack up and whatever I got a call at the office saying there was a there's a big fire out towards Ashbourne uh, and I thought well okay I'll go out that way and see what's what I got to where it it was and there was you know nothing really happening um, and it, it was it was one of these roads that's quite a over the moors, it's quite remote, and it's a bit of a up and down, real roller coaster sort of uh, road. It was a it was a road used a lot by sort of quarry lorries and things like that, heavy duty lorries and things going going back and forth. And I suddenly thought, there's a lorry behind me now. I, I pulled in a little bit or slowed down to try and let him pass me because I thought, well, I'm being nosy looking for this fire. Um, I don't want to delay him, but he didn't. He, he sort of slowed down as me. So I did a U-turn. The lorry was quite slow, and as I did it, the, the lorry sort of sped up and followed me round in the U-turn. And I thought, well, this, this is a bit odd, you know, I wonder if, he, if he's going to tell me something, or sometimes, you know, perhaps he's got lost, you know, people will flash you down and, and try and see if, if you're in the middle of nowhere, saying, is this the right road to, to so-and-so, because there's not many signs about it. you could go drive for ten miles without seeing anybody. And um, as I sort of sped up, he sped up, and... He then put on like the gantry lights on top of his cab as well as his own headlights. So it was a massive blaze of lights in the back. You, you, well, couldn't, you couldn't see out of your ones. 
I had my dog with me as well because the dog had come down at night and I thought, right, on the way home, I'll we'll go walk and then go back and get my tea, etc. So the dog was sort of whimpering because the dog could sense that I was getting agitated, I was getting frightened about this and was driving a little bit irrational and thinking, right, I'm going to have to get put my foot down try and lose this guy, you know. But the road was really up and down. You could only go at a certain sort of speed without almost taking off on the bumps. Yeah. And as I accelerated, he accelerated. And he suddenly sort of dropped the lights down a little bit and I could see he illuminated his cab and I could see that he was on like a walkie-talkie. So, you know, he was obviously in, in touch with somebody and I was thinking, what the hell is all this about, you know? The illumination went off, the, the floodlights would come on and we're back to square one again. And I'm trying to think, how the hell can I get rid of this guy? And he suddenly accelerates and he's bashing into the back of my car, pushing me forward and I'm, whoa, whoa. you know, what the hell is going off here, you know? And as he's doing it, he's, he's beeping his horn at, at full speed. And so, you know, you're getting the horn bang, horn bang, you know. And I, there was nowhere to go. You just couldn't turn off the road because it was, it was too dangerous. And I was sweating also. The dog was getting worried, started squealing. What whatever, you do? You know. So I'm, I'm trying to think, right, OK, there's different ways you can go. So we come to one sort of split junction. I, I indicate as, oh, I'm going to go right, thinking, OK, I'll do that. That very last minute, go left, try and put him off. Um, he followed and almost took the signpost out as he followed me on the same route. So we're back on that one and we started to go downhill pretty fast and, and then obviously going to the village. I'm trying to think, well, we're maybe only two miles away from safety, you know, a mile and a half from safety, a mile from safety. I'm trying to think all the time. Yeah. If I can get to the lights and get to a, a, a village, I'm going to be, I, I should be okay. But I, was, I then see him on the walkie-talkie again, you see, thinking, all right, he's, in, he's obviously in touch with somebody else. I look ahead of me and I can see a, a truck across the road in front of me, blocking the way, another quarry lorry or something, you know. So I think, this is a setup, you know, I'm, I'm a dead man oh. here. And like a film. Well, it was, it was, it was so surreal, it was unbelievable. And I suddenly, what the hell am I going to do here? And I think, right, fields, country, you know, a, a few hundred yards ahead, I saw a, like a reflector on, a, on a, a gate post. And I suddenly saw that the gate was wide open. And I thought, right, this is my only chance, it's now or never. Um, suddenly sort of took a wide sweep and swept into this gate. I heard a massive bang as I, as I, as I went through the gate and didn't instantly think what, what the hell it was. It had bashed my um, wing mirror and it was, you know, literally hanging by a thread. And I, I went into this field, he went hurtling past me. I could see him ahead. I heard the screech of his brakes as he hit the brakes with all his might and it's and everything was clattering and banging and he went smack into the side of this other truck and you could see sort of smoke rising from it because wow. and you could smell the burning rubber etc you know and I was absolutely drenched in sweat and what have you and I realised that you know my life like the mirror had been hanging by a thread you know it was as simple as that and uh, you know oh, it's pretty terrifying. obvious then that people were trying to kill me you know. <laughs> you don't try and think of the worst, really, because you're in a small town, you're in a small newspaper, um, you, you're covering a story, you know. Um, Stephen's been convicted of murder, he's in jail. 
why should somebody want to kill me? Yeah. It, it doesn't make sense. Uh, I mean, that's probably the worst thing that's happened to me in my life, really, before. I mean, I have covered stories before, I mean, when there's BBC, where I've been shot at and different things. I've been attacked behind bars and things like that. Um, which is all, you know, part and parcel of the job sometimes. Not that could be why. <laughs> no. Um, but this was something yeah, unusual. Yeah. And it's some, it was a situation you couldn't avoid, really. With the increasing personal cost and the escalating intimidation, Don asked himself, was this campaign really worth dying for? I mean, after that, that lorry toast, I mean, how, mm. how did you feel? You must have been terrified. Did you think about jacking it? But it, makes you, it made me more determined to think, well, somebody doesn't want me to investigate this case. There's something more to it. And information I was getting back from my police informants and other people was saying the same thing. He's doing time for somebody else. You know, um, we know that we know who's responsible for this. We know the person that, that's done it. And Ray was trotting this out all the time. Suddenly it seems like a you know, story worth killing for. Someone's yeah. prepared to do yeah. that. Yeah, if, if somebody bumped me off, that would probably be the end of, of the investigation. Stephen would never get out of prison, uh, basically. He would, you know, take the rap for it all the way. And nobody would dare do it. And the fact that he was on the walkie-talkie meant he was, there was a conspiracy somewhere. He was in touch with somebody else. It had been pre-planned. You know, I'd been called out deliberately, enticed by, by a woman. <laughs> this was a young woman who, who called me out. You made the original phone call. Yeah. And you're thinking, well, look, you know, if, if Stephen's the guy that's, that's committed this murder, why would people th be threatening me or anybody else? just didn't make sense. They just strengthened your, your resolve yeah. to... Yeah, and it made me more determined, mm. you know. Next time, Don Hale is now convinced that he knows who is responsible for the murder of Wendy Saul, and it isn't Stephen Downing. Don's determined to get Stephen his day in court and out of prison. Liberty seems close. But now, Don must take on the government. He must fight to change British law before Stephen, after more than 20 years in prison, can finally walk free. Reporter, Murder in the Graveyard is presented and produced by me, Lucy Ditchmont. It's mixed by Dave Dodd. The music is composed and performed by Edwin Pearson. The executive producer is Matt Hall. Reporter is a Wireless Studios production. If you like this podcast, please feel free to rate, review and recommend it to your friends. And if you want to delve deeper into the story, why not visit our website, reporterpodcast.com. A brutal murder, a wrongful conviction, a 27-year fight for justice. Read the full story that inspired this podcast. In Murder in the Graveyard, investigative journalist Don Hale tells the story of his relentless fight to overturn the longest miscarriage of justice the UK has ever seen. Delve deeper into the case that shocked the nation. Murder in the Graveyard. Available now in paperback, ebook, and audio narrated by author Don Hale himself. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.